Phillips. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Jake, thanks for having me. Good to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you in. How is your year going so far? How is it returning to Gilman to teach a little bit? It's great. It's been a very interesting experience walking through the halls again and then seeing a lot of faces that I remember uh, and a lot of faces that are new. Uh, which is, you know, it's good to see the tradition of Gilman being carried on by a new generation of teachers and then uh, also see the still, still the same sort of ethos of the kids and, you know, the excitement that's in the halls of just being here. Even with COVID, you still see it in the yeah. everyone walking around or even just walking past the lower school playing sports. It's oh, really the fun. lower school for sure. Those guys yeah. are excited. They don't care about the mass. They, they, they wear the mass. They're still having a good time out there. Yeah. But no, it's been good. I, I mean, it's a, uh, I'm still sort of transitioning and, my life now out of the military and just to be here and be back. And, you know, I'm, I moved back in with my parents. So it's like in the same house that I was when I was a student at Gilman, not coming as a teacher. It's very bizarre, but yeah. So weird set of circumstances, but yeah. we're, we're excited to have you back here. And, um, it's been great to get to know you in the few times that we've kind of sat down and talked a little bit. So, um, no, Gilman is very happy that you're back here teaching. For the semester, right? For the semester. For the semester. Yeah, so it's lucky to get the chance to do it in this sort of time in my life. And, you know, who knows? You know, one day down the road, but yeah. at least for now. I was looking at your syllabus, Perspectives in Modern War is the course, and you have a lot of really good stuff on there that, that maybe we can talk a little bit about um, how you formulated this syllabus and decided what you wanted to teach in your semester back at Gilman. Yeah, so I'm very lucky. Uh, to have the opportunity to teach the course. And it was uh, Mr. Hubeck's sort of idea and thought when I was back and I had this time to try and teach an elective. And I built it a lot from sort of my path, I guess, as this whole conversation goes. But like what, what I've learned over my past seven years in the military and then uh, about decision-making and self-awareness and how I could pass that on to high schoolers, uh, you know, what I would have wanted to know when I was leaving high school and try to make it uh, translatable. I, I've had a lot of interesting experience, met a lot of amazing people in my time in the military, and that's a lot of what the course is. I'm trying to get a lot of guest speakers to come in and talk about their perspectives, which is great for the kids, but it's also great for a lot of my friends who don't get the opportunity to try and express their time in the military either. Uh, so it's a nice uh, nice way to give back, I think, on both ends, and I'll start to have some more guest speakers come in now. But really, when I was thinking of building it, I thought of tribe sebastian younger's book uh that describes homecoming and belonging and what it means to experience trauma trauma and recover from trauma and what we can learn about uh those experiences and how they pull us together or pull us apart and it's a perfect book for the world of covid right now where we're all sort of experiencing this external threat to our society our relationships our family relationships and then again with the political divisions in our country of sort of attacking every every layer of everything that we are so that what can we do to strengthen our bonds as a society within either person to person or sort of a larger sense i think it's a perfect one to start with and we've jumped off in the course to start it that way but you know i'm going to trace some of my experience in the military as well uh in the course i'm going to have some portions on information warfare which again gets into you know, the disruption of social media and how uh, you know, I have online actors pretending to be other people uh, interfering in the elections in 2016. Uh, and then you have moving from there is sort of like in decision making in general, thinking about how do you make decisions in difficult situations and then closing the course probably with some more take on modern war and drone warfare, which is a 
a sort of interesting, different experience that uh, not is not much written about it now, at least because it's still so new in the past 10, 15 years. So a lot of interesting things you get to talk about and pass on and you know, try to communicate the experience that I had uh, and make it relatable for other people who won't have the same experience as I did or go into other different roles um, later on in college and beyond. I'm really glad you brought Tribe in, and that's a book that you're teaching and focusing on in in the course. Um, when did you when did you find Tribe? I think it was recommended to me in college. And Sebastian Younger is someone who was on Joe Rogan's podcast, which I'm a, I've said it before. I'm a huge fan of his podcast, and he's on there twice talking about Tribe and the experiences he's had at war, and exactly what you said, the sense of belonging with the guys in his his group. I think he was a journalist over in Afghanistan maybe, but um, when he came back, it was that sense of loss and alienation that is, is interesting coming back to America that you can miss uh, what was going on in the, in the Middle East. He had a sense of like, I wish I was back there almost. Um, and that's the case for a lot of, and maybe you could speak to this a little bit more than I can, but uh, a lot of, vets and people who have served come back and they, they almost miss their experience overseas. Yeah. Uh, I think he describes it really well with a lot of different vignettes in his story. But one of the ones that he talks about is how he had, when he was served, when he was a journalist in Afghanistan, very high intensity unit uh, up in Northeast Afghanistan. And one of the guys he was with, who he quotes in the book, Brendan O'Byrne, he was at a party with him and the, someone who was a psychologist who knew he'd been through a lot of war trauma asked him, uh, do, what do you miss about the war? And he responded, ma'am, I miss almost all of it. And it's this high, it doesn't make any sense for what you would think because they were in the worst sort of combat. They lost, you know, different soldiers during the, uh, the experience, which is obviously the most traumatic thing you can do is to lose someone at war. And it's still the sense if I miss so much of that togetherness and solidarity and everything we were doing that made sense of we were together and working for yourself and sacrificing for each other. So I read this book that when I came back from my first deployment, I was in a very different scenario than the high intensity combat. I was mostly doing uh, or part of drone warfare in the sense of sort of the modern war element, uh, still very bizarre experience and strange to, uh, it's not something that's really well trained for yet to prepare you to make decisions where you're, uh, you know, actually going after, ISIS and terrorists in using drones to target and strike them. Very uh, weird and strange to be sort of removed from it by a TV screen, but you know at the other end of the TV screen that real people are dying and you're you're making real effects and you have to live with those and understand those. And every life that lost that is lost is a tragedy in some way, whether it is someone who deserves it in the case of war or someone that doesn't. Every single one's a tragedy, and you have to live with that when you come home and understand all the decisions you made and you were a part of. So I read this in 2017, right after I got back from my first deployment. It helped put some of that feeling in perspective and sort of understand what I what I did and what my team did and what we went through. And then to go back, you know, I was preparing for a second deployment at the time, so I was like very much still uh, in the mode of wanting to continue to serve or needing to continue to serve, but I sort of understood that a little better. And it's helped me. You know, I've read it a few times now. Read, we read it for the course, but the what we can learn from that, I think, is important. Of because when I was deployed at a different level, I still felt that brotherhood and togetherness of being part of the unit. And then, you know, when you go home and people, you know, me transitioning out of the military, you sort of lose that 
brotherhood at some point. It's a different uh, different experience you try to hold on to in different ways. So he describes a lot of good other civilian examples too. There's the London Blitz, uh, and it's sort of the the feeling during the Blitz that's talked about sometimes is that you know people in London came together and sort of had that sense of solidarity, even though there was so much loss and devastation and destruction in London during that time. So it's like, how do we how do we learn from that? It's like uh, he described suicides that went down. People didn't said they didn't drink any more or less. And uh, the same sort of feeling that we felt, at least briefly, all of us you know, who were alive for it after 9-11 of that sense of national unity. Uh, Younger also uses the example of mass shootings and how that's a horrible, you know, obviously very tragic expression of something being wrong with our society in general. But after 9-11, two years, we didn't have any what would be considered mass shootings uh, in the sense of what they describe it in sort of the academic way. Um, and we see that now again with COVID. Is that because we, we haven't had a mass shooting five or more people since February? You know, it's very sad that that is only the, the uh, February 2020, that that's only the break we get. But is that because we have this external threat or is that because you know people aren't gathering? We can't say for sure, but at least we're sort of understanding that there could be some of some togetherness we feel now because of COVID that's keeping things like that, that are such metrics of you know, a symptom of something being wrong with society that happened. Yeah, it makes me wonder what about these traumatic experiences forges such strong, close-knit bonds between people that can't and aren't replicated in modern-day American society. And I, I think Younger talks about this in, in the book, but what is it about trauma and war and these examples he brings up like the blitz that force people to coexist in uh, more close knit, almost loving ways than that's missing here in modern society. Yeah. I think younger, the most concise answer would be younger sense of sacrifice is that we, we have no reason to sacrifice for each other in modern society because of all the comforts that we have. But when you're in a unit abroad as part of a you know small knit combat team, or you have something like a traumatic event force you to sacrifice for each other, and that sense of I'm going to sacrifice for you, you're going to sacrifice for me, that's a dependability that we don't really feel in modern society from day to day, even with close friends or sometimes even with family, and that's that is a what's missing uh, from our society is the sense that we you know live and work for each other and we're willing to. To sacrifice for each other and younger's other good example is using the native american tribes and sort of their sense of you know cohesion or you know societal cohesion how they sacrificed or worked together and had a co- cohesive society that we just don't have in our you know capitalist modern society which has its lot of benefits and comfort uh, but it's like what can we learn from uh, those societies that have seemed to sacrifice for each other more and bring each other bring each other together more i think that's the big thing we try to what can we pull out of this for for us now were these vignettes that younger uses in the in the book tribe realistic for you when you were returning back to the united states after being overseas were you relating maybe more so to what he's talking about in your return to modern society what those not as from the like large sense of society, not as much. I think what I was putting in context was the sort of life and death experiences that I was involved in or sort of understanding and understanding what it means to come back to that. And he talks a lot about people who experience trauma who have different reactions and sort of your body has different 
responses to it. And I think he does a good job of uh, describing evolutionarily why we want to sleep lightly if we experience trauma, mm -hmm. why you want to have nightmares, uh, why you want to be angry, why you want to be depressed, because that's your body keeping you alive in a different way. And so when you have like sort of small examples of things that that happen or experiences that you remember that you sort of remember in a bad way, you're like, okay, this makes sense. This is why I'm remembering it this way. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the lines that uh, Younger uses is he starts one of his chapters saying, this is the first time I knew I had a problem. And he talks about sort of a panic attack that he had in a subway. And I, th and, uh, I think I've used, you know, I've I obviously didn't experience the level of trauma that you know, him, he did in any of his units, but still with my li life or death experience that I remember being a part of, like my memory of that, you know, I've had different moments of uh, sort of like my heart beating out of my chest. And it's like, okay, I understand why I'm remembering it and my body's doing this. There's nothing wrong with me. Mm -hmm. Like this it's is like a, a natural. It's a natural thing. And that's, it's hard to accept at first. It's like, well, yeah, it's like something's wrong. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to tell anyone about this. Like they'll think I'm messed up or something. But right. um, at the end of the day, it's better to just be, you know, open about this is what happened. This is what, what I'm feeling and to communicate it and learn from that and understand that, uh, you know, it's natural. All of us experience trauma in a different way. I was with a, a good friend uh, a few nights ago, we we're talking about this. Uh, he's a another Marine, and he he had said that, yeah, you go to war and you come back, you might have the same level of trauma as someone who got into a really bad car accident. It's like it's true. Mm -hmm. You might it could be very similar to what uh, someone else's experience. It, it doesn't make you any different from, uh, you know, anyone else who experienced trauma in a different way. So it's just important to just say that yes, I experienced it. Yes, these are the feelings I still have about it. You know, these, this is what's, what's lingering and I'm learning from it. But all of us in society are, are, have this sort of shared sense of something went wrong, whatever level it is, uh, whether it's something, you know, life or death to a spectrum of something, just sort of being an emotional disappointment or, or loss or failure. It's all on the spectrum of learning from it. And we don't, and to normalize that spectrum and normalize that understanding of trauma and growth from trauma, we have to be able to communicate it mm -hmm. and have to be able to talk about it, which isn't easy. Uh, you know, I haven't. It took me, uh, you know, years to talk about the sort of feelings that I had after my deployment uh, to be able to be open about it and say, like, yeah, you know, sometimes my heart will beat out of my chest or something like that when something's brought up. It's hard to hard to admit that, uh, mm -hmm. but you know, you learn that's the right thing to do and the best way to communicate it. So some of the examples that he shares in in the book about people missing their experiences overseas or missing traumatic experiences because those connections with with fellow soldiers or people you shared the experience with were so strong do, do you do you miss your experiences sometimes like do you kind of wish you were overseas in 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 those dangerous areas that you that you were put into yeah i don't th i don't think you miss you definitely miss the overall experience or parts of it you don't miss bad things happening yeah but it's the backdrop of those things happening that like sort of forces the unit the cohesion um, i'm very happy to be back in the u.s and not in western iraq mm -hmm. uh, but it is a weird the the relationships and you know if i wasn't lucky with family or wasn't lucky with the friend group that i have i could very easily think man it was you know super fun at points like yeah we went through some you know difficult decisions and bad things but you know we'd still have like moments to relax and 
uh, sort of talk about it and be that unit and be with people who understood what you went through as well, where you could just talk about it and not have to explain it. Uh, so you, you miss it at, at a certain point, especially if you come home and you don't have that mm-hmm. group of family and friends to support you. So there's so many great uh, things that support veterans in our society now, but a lot of them, you know, people just don't know about or even veterans themselves don't know about. I'm still learning things about the VA that I didn't know that are out there to support, you know, people like me or people who uh, had similar deployments. Um, so it's uh, it's something to learn, I think. You do miss, you're do. you always going to miss that relationship and that sense that you had. It's like being on a good team. I mean, you still could miss the team that you're that you were on, uh, you know, and you you know did th- did some things together, and you can sort of reminisce. It's just a little harder to reminisce, I think, when it's the bizarre experience of war rather than you know sports or you know something else like that. So, when you're discussing tribe in in your classes, what are some of the ideas or topics that come up in conversation with the group? Uh, for the senior elective course that you're teaching? Yeah, one of them I think is is a very useful like modern event is the capital ride and thinking about how you know people are either manipulated to think a certain way about whatever spectrum you're on of the event that actually happened. Uh, there was a really good ar- article written about a written by a marine uh, former marine who's now writer Elliot Ackerman, another book that we're going to read that uh, he he wrote called Places and Names. In a very good nonfiction telling the story of the rise of ISIS uh, from his perspective, being a former Marine who served in you know, various capacities, but most famously in Fallujah in 2004. Uh, so he wrote a uh, opinion article about how the Capitol riot reminded him of combat and sort of that strange sense of history that he felt crossing the road into Fallujah to start the uh, clearance of Fallujah in 2004. He said that watching those videos... He could see that sense of history of the people breaking into the Capitol and then seeing, you know, walking through those areas with all the paintings and, and understanding they're in a very, you know, special building and had broken in and sort of had that awestruck moment. So um, the other thing he described is the sort of stupefied feeling you see when you face a traumatic event. And that, that was his last description of the protester actually getting shot right at the edge of their like sort of front line. And people were just, when they saw it, they weren't scared or afraid. They just felt stupefied. And he says, that's how you feel in combat too. And I, you know, from my limited experience uh, in sort of the drone drone warfare world, I can imagine that, you know, the first time I saw a truck blow up on screen, it was sort of, it wasn't, it wasn't, well, I wasn't in danger, so it wasn't scary, but it was just sort of strange rather than something being, uh, you know, really weird. But anyway, um, I think that his, the capital ride has been something that we've talked about a little bit as sort of an example of our tribe and what's wrong with our tribe and what we can learn from it and also learn from the trauma and people experience all, all around COVID. You know, that's a obviously pervasive through all of our, our lives, but that effect that I mentioned earlier of we have not had a mass shooting since February, 2020, is that something that's due to COVID uh, because of that external threat that we're feeling? Um, but it's, it's good to, these are definitely, you know, themes that will you know resonate throughout all of our lives of, experiencing bad things happening and, and learning from it. So there'll be more, uh, I'm sure, that we'll pick up and keep talking about. Yeah, and I just, I think the experience of knowing you're living through a historical moment is interesting to talk about this year specifically with, with your your classes because in the instances you described, it, it sounds like the people involved knew they were a part of history. And I think for us living today, we all know COVID is, it's history. I mean, this is this is an insane time in 
in our lives. And I think maybe the seniors can't relate so much to what it's like to be at war, but they can relate to the experience of living through a historical moment. It's just bizarre and weird and tough to wrap your mind around when you're in it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the sort of going back to the important idea of the spectrum of trauma of just understanding we all have experienced bad things and can learn from it and have different responses to it. Uh, I've had some students in the class who've said, well, I haven't had anything bad happen to me. It's like, well, that's good to be humble and aware that clearly you're not, you don't have something bad as bad as other people. And we're very lucky for that. Uh, but we all have things that go wrong or, uh, relationships that have been broken or things to learn from. Um, so it's, I think COVID's a great example of we have all been through something difficult at different levels uh, because we've all experienced it in a different way and have been you know, fortunate or unfortunate in a different way. But we can all sort of have that compassion and empathy to understand this was something bad that I went through. What did I learn from it or how can I grow? Along the lines of tribe, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on how maybe COVID is making individuals more cohesive or alienating people more from maybe your perspective of someone who's had the closest bonds that you can really find at, at war um, and and looking out on what's going on in our country right now and whether things are alienating people more or bringing us closer together at all. Yeah, I think Younger himself was probably watching the beginning of COVID and hoping this would be the experience he sort of wrote about. Because this book he wrote in 2014, so well before any of these, uh, any of this could have started happening or we could even get close to thinking it. But I wonder, I, mean, I think we've gone both ways in some ways. We've had serious political divisions. I think the fact that 2020 was an election year made it worse for everyone. Uh, if it hadn't been an election year, we might have experienced more national unity. Hopefully we can start to feel that national unity now that we have a break from any upcoming elections where you know we'll have either the media or politicians trying to be divisive as possible just to get elected. Uh, so I think we've it could have gone both ways. I hope I'm hopeful that it will be more of a national unity event as we transition out post the vaccine. There've been moments of you know selflessness and uh, you know people working together. I was. I saw, you know, all the food donations people were doing for healthcare workers at the beginning, right when things were shut down. There were groups doing donations from restaurants, trying to keep small businesses running and giving them to uh, hospitals. We've seen so many people donate masks and uh, sacrifice for one another. Going back to that, of the sense of hospital workers, healthcare workers are sacrificing for us. Let's try and sacrifice for them and give something for them too. So that sense was there. Was it was it strong? It was, but was it? told enough probably not because it was probably drowned out in the uh, misinformation disinformation surrounding uh, either the disease itself or, or the upcoming election so hopeful but i don't think we've seen it entirely as being too many too much unifying yeah well it's amazing to me even last night like w when it seems like everyone's watching the super bowl like a, a football game is one thing that can bring our country together even if it's just for a few hours like everyone is watching the Super Bowl glued to the TV at home with their families. There's no, you know, Twitter wars, misinformation. It's just the Super Bowl. It's something to rally around as a country. And it's weird that it, it takes a game. I mean, it's just bizarre how we operate as human beings, but it takes a game to do that, even if it's just for a brief amount of time. 
but thank God we have that at least, you know, we got something that brings us together still. And, you know, we're lucky we even had the season this year. I remember thinking we weren't going to have it at all. And then, you know, feeling the togetherness of Baltimore being in the playoffs again, I always loved the, that sense. And when we lost the bills, it was like, well, you know, at least we had that for a moment. Yeah. At least there's something on to watch and, you know, I think concerts are and music is the ultimate unifying experience because even with sports, like there's you're still rooting for someone. There's still kind of some kind of animosity towards the other side. But with music, it's like if you go to a concert, everyone in that venue is on the same page. Everyone's happy. Everyone's having a good time. So that that's one thing that's COVID has stripped from society that is unifying, I think, is music, concerts. Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. I remember the artists doing sort of their live stuff right at the beginning when no one was going out, and that was a nice thing to, you know, regular artists playing. Then Chris Martin from Coldplay was just like playing around. And, He's the best. Yeah, just said like, "Oh, you want me to play that?" It's like that song's older than you are. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that was cool. But because of the digital world, it's not as much of being together in a concert and all like sort of experiencing it together so it's difficult stuff yeah it's hard to find things like that right now but um some of the other course materials on your syllabus that i was looking at um redeployment is another book of short stories that i was looking to use in my classes and along the lines of what we were talking about i think it might be the first story in redeployment about the dogs is that something that you teach yeah, I'm going to pick a, a few of those out. I'm not sure if I'll pick that one, um, but Phil Clay is a, you know, he's Marine now author, similar to Elliot Ackman, and he, uh, he's got a lot of good ways to communicate that experience, which I think is different from, you know, civilian writing about war. Not that a civilian can't do that very well. He just has a sort of that unique uh, perspective to, to write about it. Yeah, it's interesting. So much of your syllabus is f- fiction. I mean, it's, based on Phil Clay's experiences and Tim O'Brien's experiences at war, but you still implement a lot of fiction and literature into your syllabus, which I, I appreciate as an English teacher, but I found that interesting how you, how you did that. Yeah. I think the stories and you know, things they carry describes it very well of sort of sometimes the truth can be expressed through fiction even better than it could be expressed through the truth. Uh, and uh, you know, Phil Clay and there'll be another fiction story, Ohio, which is a non-military author who wrote, you know, very, very good stories about sort of the military experience and coming home from that, um, which communicates the sort of what's the truth that we're trying to understand and learn from in the class, which is, you know, more of the English perspective for sure. So thinking a little bit about your decision or your wanting to join the Marines and, and be in the military, when did that play out for you when did that first happen for you or what maybe inspired you to want to join the military in the story term of how it happened i would say it was my grandfather's funeral who served in world war ii and they did military honors for him as he was uh you know buried and that moment i remember thinking there's nothing more important i could do with my life than serve this is a guy who served for four years during world war ii as a sailor and then spent the rest of his life living in Baltimore and raising a family, but still as he's remembered and being buried, the, it's his military service that, that matters. And I did have that moment while I was uh, a junior. I was a junior in high school when that happened. I did have that moment remembering that and thinking that. He be- didn't talk much about the war at all uh, or his experiences, 
uh, right before he died, he gave me these coins um, from his time in Australia during World War II, uh, just coincidentally, obviously. And I've remembered him and I remember my other grandfather who I'm actually named after who's luckily still alive, uh, who's a Navy Intel officer. And there are two people I looked up to in my life you know, very closely. And if there's anyone I wanted to be like, it was them to live up to their, uh, you know, sense of honor or sense of selflessness or serving others, you know, very much family men who were giving back to the family and help, helping to support us and, and wise and teaching. So it is looking up to my grandfathers. I had sort of a, uh, you know, circuitous path to actually joining because as I, after I teach this summer, I'm going off to med school and becoming a doctor, which has been my long-term dream since really high school, since Gilman, I guess, uh, when I knew sort of liked the science classes I was taking, loved the teachers that I had here and inspired me to, to want to, uh, you know, serve as a doctor later down the road. But when I got to college, you know, watching the wars and I sensed in right after the surge in Afghanistan and, you know, 2011, I sensed my generation and my, uh, you know, a lot of people my age were fighting at war and sacrificing for each other. And I, I was not. And that was my uh, really drive to get to get in and serve and and be a part of it. By 2014, when I graduated, all those wars had drawn down almost completely. So I'd sort of missed it in that sense. But in 2014, as in the course, talking about the rise of ISIS, June 2014 is the, uh, you know, sort of when ISIS was known on the map. And ISIS would be the terrorist group that I would spend my time uh, in the military um, trying to, you know, fight against or, or work to disrupt as much as we could. So that became what I would be serving for, you know, other than serving for our country and serving for our Marines, you know, that was the sort of the external threat that unified us. Um, and, but it was, you know, they obviously didn't exist in 2012 when I signed up to join. I still just thought that I was watching the wars before and knew that my generation was doing it and that, you know, I wanted to be a part of it. Sounds like a lot of your aspirations originated here at Gilman in high school almost your your desire to become a doctor your desire to join the military um then you went on to Harvard and you you were part of the ROTC there um what was that experience like yeah it was so I I had a lot of friends at Gilman who were applying to the Naval Academy or applying to West Point that was honestly my first sort of thought of well I mean maybe I should think about doing something like this too and I applied for ROTC, uh, which I would do during college. But I actually ended up switching programs and did just the Marine program in the summers, um, which was a better experience for me than ROTC. Because ROTC, uh, Reserves Officer Training Corps, you're in college, but you're also doing training. You have to go to class in your uniform, sort of very visible as a uh, – sometimes you have to go to class in your uniform, sort of very, very visible as a uh, member of the military. When I was in the Marine program, I was completely incognito only trained in the summer. No one really knew mm. uh, that I was joining the military until I commissioned the day before graduation and, you know, officially started active duty then. So I liked being, you know, living between two worlds without having to mix them. Um, but it was a, uh, you know, Harvard had a lot of, you know, team experiences that I started at Gilman of uh, sort of being part of that, being part of a community and sacrificing for each other. And I loved being part of a team. And I knew that at some level being in the military, you'd be uh, sort of using those experiences of leadership that I had on teams at Gilman to to pass on at a different level. So a lot of things I learned that I ended up transferring, but my time in college, I didn't really 
mix my worlds of military and you know, being a student, which is also very difficult just because of you know the uh, you know, academic rigor, being a teammate, and not really wanting to go to MIT to do my military training. How, how often did you have to do training? Was it every day? Was it every couple times a week? Or what was that like? So I was officially in RTC for a semester, my freshman spring. And I had to go to, I think I went to MIT three days a week for you know, physical training or class or something like that. Um, we bounced around, which, you know, doesn't sound like too much, but then I've got practice on top of that. Is it in the morning, typically? In, in the morning, yeah. So I jump on the tee and get down and then mm-hmm. go on the tee back and be wearing my little army jacket. So it's sort of funny to imagine seeing other students. Uh, if I saw them now on the subway, it'd be very different to think of that. Yeah. Be like, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, yeah, I, I ended up getting out of that partially just because of the, you know, sort of, again, a circuitous pass. I actually dropped out because I thought I'd just be a doctor. I was like, well, I'll just, I'll just join and be a doctor in the military. Hmm. I did a semester thinking that, and then still, again, watching the wars from 2011 to 2012, I thought I gotta, gotta join now. I can't, I don't want to wait to join because if I was a doctor, I'd be joining right now pretty much. And it'd be 2020, you know, 2021, and it'd been seven years from college. Mm-hmm. too long for me to wait somewhat impatient uh and that's why i ended up jumping in the marine program so wouldn't let me back into rcc because i dropped out so i was like well i'll try the marine program then. and they let me in so right when you graduated you were signed up for the marines you were going into the marines what was the training and the process to deployment like in the marine corps uh yeah so it was uh the marines do interesting training where every officer goes through six months of the same school. So it's sort of a unifying, again, like makes a tribe of officers because you all know each other or have similar experiences. So probably partially why they do it. Uh, I In that six month school, you're basically applying the whole time to do a specialty. So when you're in the military, obviously as people with different specialties, some people are communications, some people are intelligence, infantry, uh, you know, you can be a pilot. So I wanted to be a ground intelligence officer, which was a mix between infantry and intel. So you know, it's the infantry sense of really being on the ground and you know serving with the guys who are in combat or the guys who are on the front line. That's really what infantry means from a sort of outside perspective. And then intel is a little more analysis to sort of have some back end interesting, uh, interesting I think, to the sense of thinking about what the enemy's doing and trying to get it from the enemy's perspective more than you do already in infantry. So ground intelligence and the Marines allowed me to fuse both of those drives and interests, and that led me to go through the six months of training, went through in three months of intensive infantry training, which is sort of the uh, the main course that infantry officers go through in the Marines. Learned a lot in that school, and that was you know, one of the best leadership experiences I had and things that I'll still remember and think about from time to time of like that brotherhood that we had in that, in that uh, school, a lot of great friends from it, and also the sort of moments of failure I had in that, and then the moments of success. I think the most success I ever had in training was due to patience or being so patient and you know, in a way, in as much as you can be selfless and working for other people. And I remember thinking later in life when I'm not as patient, I'm like, man, I was, I was a little better back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, but went through that, went through scout sniper uh, employment training. So not a trained sniper. It's a three-week course that you just learn how to employ scout snipers. Uh, and then I went to an Intel school for three months as well after that. And then I was fully trained. So it's a long, it's pretty much about, you know, a year and a half of training to get me to my unit in California as a scout sniper platoon commander, 
uh, to lead to that you know group of Marines uh, up for deployment, and that was May 2016. So May 2014, pretty much in May 2016, took took about two years of training to get to actually get out into the real uh, military, where I was really part of an operation. During this time, what were some of the aspects of leadership you learned and and maybe how does leadership function in the marines that you didn't really realize or know before you had joined yeah i think i got a lot of a lot of lessons in leadership i think as a you know sort of captain of a sports team you know you have your always, and I thought was really good, and uh, Coach Neil Gaby was a volleyball coach back when I was here, always really good about thinking about instilling lead by example. Lead by example is huge in the military. and But there's also sort of the level of where you have to be hard mm-hmm. on someone as well. And I, I think that's what I balanced when I was on deployment of learning. I'm not a yeller at all. You guys can probably imagine I don't <laughs> yell very often. <laughs> but I had to yell at points. You know, I had to be angry when things went wrong or things that I'm not very good at it. Don't like it either, but it's just like you, there has to be a moment to influence certain people. The way you're going to do it is to be sort of soft and pull them aside and say, this is what, you know, you really messed up there. Or the way you're going to do it is yell in front of everyone. You really messed up there. You know, it's like, and you have to think about leadership. I guess what I didn't know, you can have your own philosophy. You can think this is how I'm going to lead, but your subordinates or your team or whoever you're leading you need to have a different way to reach every single one of them pretty much at least that's unified and you know unified so it's not false but if you reach one of your marines differently than another that's okay you just have to be able to build that differently i learned the most about leadership from the actual marines that were in my platoon who would really like teach me and help me out and say no you're really not to, we need to do something a little better now for that one of the things i learned from them was um we were sitting down, as with my team leaders, it was before our deployment, and you know there was some complaining in the, about the platoon, about the intensity of the training as we were getting ready. It's like, we need more time, we need more time off or something like that. Um, and I said something to the effect of, I really shouldn't be complaining as much as we are. I generally don't think complaining is good. I'm not like a big complainer, but other people, I think it's a healthy way to actually express yourself. And that's something I sort of learned eventually is that you're, you're better if you let other people complain or vent, which I was never good at. And uh, my Marine, who hopefully is going to come guest speak at some point for the course, just turned me as like, sir, I gripe up, I don't gripe down. It's like, okay, that makes sense. I understand what you're saying now. You're not complaining down, because then if you're complaining down, everyone thinks like, man, this place is, this place is terrible, everything's going wrong. But if you can gripe up to me and say, this is what's wrong, this needs to fix, but trust me, that I'm not complaining to my subordinates or complaining to my team. So I learned a lot in that sense of trust of saying, you know, understanding that this person could be complaining to me, but I have to trust him that he is doing the right things with his team and learning from that. Um, And trust is a big thing I learned from sort of leading a team uh, before we were getting ready for deployment. I remember one exercise where a, uh, one of my sniper team leaders was telling me, or, I had to tell one of my sniper team leaders to move to a different position. It takes a long time for a sniper team to set up and like get everything right. You think about security, they have to be in the right area to look at sort of the enemy that they're trying to look at. Uh, and I had to tell them to move because someone else in the battalion, our big unit, had made a mistake. And they had to move because of that other team. Other, other person had made a mistake. And he, the lead team leader, 
didn't really trust that I was doing everything to try and defend him, but I had to tell him to move at this point. I'd come, you know, I tried to make the difference in the same way of griping up, not griping down. I tried to say as much as I can to defend them from moving and doing all that issues that they had to do to move. Um, and then eventually, you know, he had to move and he understood. But after that is the lesson of like, you have to trust me as well. I got to trust you, but you got to trust me that I have all your best interests in mind and I'm doing the best I can. So trust, I think is the biggest thing, uh, in leadership and understanding that, that I sort of learned and, you know, it takes a lot of time to, to earn it with uh, the people you're with, but leading by example, unselfishness, empathy, seeing from them, those are the key things I think that help you build that trust and maintain it. It's interesting the comparisons you make with playing sports. I've been doing a couple short episodes on the podcast, about 30, 40 minutes. And the first one we had was Coach Nostrand, lacrosse coach here, and, and we were talking about leadership a little bit, mostly about building culture for a, for a program. And one of the things he said about leadership was his core element is trust. And it, I was looking at your syllabus too, and, and you have a segment on leadership with John Wooden, and John Wooden's a part of your course too. So I, I find it interesting how you relate sports to, you know, to what you were doing in the Marines. Yeah, and the military relates what it does back to sports. John Wooden uh, was, we read John Wooden's book in my infantry officer course, the intensive infantry training I did as a Marine. And I was like, this is what leadership is from that perspective. And uh, military is very big and uh, you know, doing things by the basics, brilliance in the basics, same with John Wooden and sort of how to put on your socks and how to tie your shoes that he starts with all his teams. So a lot of, I think, Leadership, another great sort of quote that I've always remembered is that leadership doesn't change, only leaders do. And I think that is the same. You know, there's a sense that all of our leadership lessons work together, whether it's you know, it's a business, whether it's a, uh, a team that you're leading or whether you're uh, leading in the military. I think it's all of those lessons overlap and it's something that we can learn from. Yeah, I taught in the fall a course, a senior elective on leadership, and it was English based, but we had a lot of historical figures that we looked at. And one of the questions that we constantly talked about was whether leadership is something that you learn in your life and something that you can pick up and a trait you can learn really, or, or something that you're just born with. Like from a military perspective and the people that you got to know, and really from your own experiences, what do you think? the answer is to that question is it a mix of both are people born leaders or are there skills that you can learn and pick up along the way to make you a leader yeah it's a good question it's also something that you're asked as you're going through military training sort of understanding and, and studying leadership i think it's both there are qualities you're born with that are strong for being a leader but there's so much that you learn uh, in a sense of nurture that you do and uh, the qualities that you're born with to be a leader are very small compared to how much you learn and, and exhibit them and can change. I think, honestly, it, it's so in that sense, it really screen, uh, you know, sort of leans more way to the side of le leadership is learned, not as much as it's innate. Mm -hmm. I think some people are naturally good at influencing people and they, you know, influence is a large part of leadership and convincing them that what we're doing is right for them and best for them uh, as much as is best for the group. Uh, but in the sense of learning, all of us can either do that by innately or someone can learn to do that very well. Uh, similar to what I said about not being a big yeller, I mean, there are people who, you know, grow up and 
you know, are more you know, verbose or loud or sort of like seem like the strong leader in that sense. Um, and they're very quiet people are just as strong leadership so, or just as strong in leadership. So it's definitely a spectrum. Um, there's so much to learn. The best, better thing to do in the sense of all of us is to focus on how can we learn to be better leaders and the fact that really anyone, if they want to be, can be a strong leader if they exhibit the, stra- the traits, uh, you know, empathy, selflessness, proficiency, being good at what you're doing, um, that that bring you to that point of being able to influence people. From my sister who's who was at West Point, she just graduated, and just from watching her um, and her classmates and her friends, it just seems like habit is such like forming habits and non-negotiable habits really at West Point and in the military makes you change so much. Like my sister, when she first went into the military, you would never think that she's going to be like a West Point person. But but now it's like those habits that she had to do every single day, making your bed, like respect, all of these things that we're talking about, they're non-negotiable habits that she, I mean, she didn't have a choice really. And that over the course of time, that just changes you as a person. You become more detail-oriented, more respectful, more humble, uh, more trustworthy, uh, resilient, all of these things. And it's really, in in my view, I, I don't know if, what, what your thoughts are on this, but it's a product of habit. It's just the way that you're trained and the way people train you to, how to be. Yeah, no, I agree. I think those little habits that we make make such big changes about how you are. And another thing I love from Tim O'Brien is in one of his writings, he says, a little practice of being, being brave would have helped a little. Before he went to Vietnam, he always thought, well, well, at least in the story, he always thought that, you know, I'll be able to have this well of courage and bravery that I can use at some point. I'm saving it up. I'm not going to talk. This person's doing the wrong thing right now, but I'm, I don't need to speak up now. And that's the sense that all of us have the habit, of, can make the habit of being brave hmm. in our daily lives because there are you know, so, many, so many little things, whether someone says a slur or someone says a bad joke uh, that happen daily where we can stand up and say, hey, you know, that's not the right thing to say. Hmm. Um, we have to learn from that and be different or someone misunderstands something or is mean to someone, you know, why were you so mean? And why don't we include him or her better? Uh, I think all of those, uh, all those things are, are habits in the sense too. And you, and you learn in military training and it's, it's hopeful that you hold on to them. And at times you stray from them and get better because just like anything else, I mean, I went through training six, you know, almost five years ago now. So all I have left are the habits more than I have the actual, the moments in training. So, but yeah. Yeah. Courage as a habit. I think that's something that gets easier every time you stand up for someone or you speak up for something. If you do it once, I mean, you're, you're more likely to do it again. And then it's just the, the more often that comes up, it becomes a part of you as a person almost. Yeah. And just takes that first leap to start the process of building that habit. And it is hard uh, to stand up and do the right thing, but it doesn't have to be if you do it more than that, or if you really, really believe in it. So when you were deployed, what was the, how did that play out? So your, the, your first deployment and, and maybe what was that like? We can talk a little bit about your experience in Iraq. Yeah. Uh, so first deployment, like I've sort of mentioned, I was a sniper platoon commander, but when you're a sniper platoon commander, especially in this stage of the wars that we're fighting, your sniper teams are given two other companies, so other units within our, you know, overall unit sort of to be in smaller areas. So 
all of my teams were my teams were spread out from Syria to northern Iraq to Kuwait and other places in Iraq at the time, uh, and I was in western Iraq leading a command center, so I was part of that first line of uh, deciding for like a, like I've described in the drone warfare of targeting ISIS, supporting. Uh, the Iraqis as they were doing the actual military clearance to defeat ISIS in the, along the Euphrates in Western Iraq. Um, and the timeline for that was the most interesting. You know, that was the experience for me that was the closest thing to combat that I experienced, really the life or death that I experienced. My second deployment, uh, very different, which I'll, I can describe more in a second. But October 2016, you know, it's obviously right before another election, but uh, President Obama and then the prime minister of Iraq at the time announced that the offensive is going into northern Iraq, and it's really the, the tide is turning against ISIS at, at that point. And that's when ISIS is uh, the town called Mosul, second largest town in northern Iraq, or in Iraq, uh, by population, um, which was controlled by ISIS and was taken over in June 2014, again, seeing the start of, really the start of ISIS being that town. So that offensive was starting, and that was a big you know, moment for the deployment. I was in western Iraq, so we were in a different uh, focus of the mission, but that was sort of the the large event. And then again, seeing uh, Trump get elected from uh, in 2017, and sort of the changes or what didn't change, or how uh, it's sort of funny to to come home and have people uh, on you know supporting different sides of the spectrum be like, man, things must have been different when Trump was president. It was like they actually weren't that much different. You know, still like the the mission went on. Obama to Trump passed it on. You know, in a very you know sort of uh, cohesive manner, at least from my perspective, uh, as I saw it. So, uh, but all those things were sort of interesting times in history to be there. So I was there from uh, early or sort of uh, early fall 2016 to 2017, all the time uh, that I was there, I was in Western Iraq and sort of supporting my sniper teams from afar uh, with different, uh, you know, however I could. But when you're over there and when you're serving, are you thinking much about the political decisions going on or you're more just following orders like for instance my sister she can never say anything poorly about trump or the president or whoever's in charge because that's her commander-in-chief she she's not going to say anything about him or her whoever's in charge she's just following orders was that similar to when you were in iraq and when you're in the military you're just following orders you're not thinking too much about the nitty-gritty politics that are going on back here. Yeah, uh, I think that's one of the strengths of the military by far is the fact that it's nonpartisan. And that's something that's been attacked at different points, but it's something we need to be appreciative in our democracy that uh, we are nonpartisan and we can get in trouble if we say something bad or attend a, you know, a pro-political rally or something like that or an anti-rally because you give up some of your freedoms to serve. And that's you know just a part of the the basis of what you do. So we lose those freedoms when we're serving, which I think is a good thing and and useful. Uh, you still sort of have you know some ties to back home, obviously with news and uh, you know with being able to talk via phone or anything. You're still somewhat relating and seeing what's going on back home. But I spent most of my sort of work up and time getting ready for that deployment, trying to convince my Marines that as it looked like, you know, Hillary was thought to be president next. I was trying to convince them that even if Hillary was president, there was still a good chance that we would be in significant or, you know, more intense combat operations than what they're doing now, just because we could see how the mission was going and changing. Um, because all of them sort of think that 
you know, a Democrat in a very simple, simple understanding is that a Democrat's less likely to send people to war than a Republican or to put people in, in combat, um, which, you know, obviously over history has not been true. But that's the simple way to explain it. So I spent that time trying to prepare them for that. And then when Trump got elected, it sort of changes things. But we were all watching the election that day. It was obviously a moment in history to remember. I remember thinking that things would change when I was there or things would be different or something would would uh, would escalate or or, uh, you know, sort of change our experience. But you know, obviously over time, that, over time, it didn't. It's nice being away from a lot of the political divisions. Um, and not having to deal with like the day-to-day sort of mindset. You've got something else to think about and focus on that's more important than all of the sort of, you know, worthless political divisions that we have to deal with. But you, 100% that, you know, you are following the orders. We, we were following orders all the way up and down the chain, which is a very large chain from like my small unit all the way up to the president. So there are a lot of people in between that you're supporting and, and following. Uh, and the person at the top does that matter as much? You still have the same boss. You still have the same general over him. You know, it's really not as much a, a him or her. You still have the same general over there. So you sort of go along with it. But. Um, yeah, and another thing that I've been thinking about and watching, and really a lot of my, a lot of my information actually comes from Joe Rogan's conversations with various people, and um, he has he has. Dan Crenshaw is one person who I've watched a little bit of, and um, Tulsi Gabbard is another one he's had on his podcast. And what I like about their conversations is their long-form conversations like this where these politicians can explain, and they're both in the military too, so they can explain their thinking on certain political decisions. And Tulsi and uh, Dan Crenshaw disagree on a lot of things, but one one major question is like why do we keep so many troops in the middle east and wouldn't it be better to bring people home and they disagree on that point and and curious maybe you can speak to this a little bit but like what is the purpose of keeping so many guys over there and like why wouldn't we bring people home or why would we keep keep guys over in in the middle east area yeah it's definitely something you think about often it's like why is keeping troops over them I mean more people like me and my friends and the people i served with will go over at some point leave their families potentially experience you know sort of the difficult things that you have to experience in a, in a combat zone but why we leave people there is because of the partnerships that we build we've got a great partnership with the iraqi government iraqi government is has really uh, been so much stronger in the past few years in fighting ISIS and reclaiming their country and strengthening uh, their country from obviously the terrible threat that came in 2014. Uh, and to just leave completely is not realistic in a sense because we still have you know bases or troops in so many countries around the world. Do we need to leave completely? We have people in Germany, people in Japan, South Korea. We have all of these bases all around the world. And by a... Uh, you know, comparison, it's important to have a base near your key partners in the region. Iraq should be a key partner in our region for, you know, the the foreseeable future as long as any, any anyone or I can imagine uh, because of all the work that we've done to help build up their country. What, they, what troops would do, hopefully, is transition from actual combat operations. So drone warfare would end. There would, wouldn't be troops going out and actually trying to, trying to hunt terrorists or doing that, and that would be all Iraq leading its own mission. And uh, 
you know, American troops or NATO troops from our, you know, strong partnerships that we would have would uh, just be there to either train um, and not even do as much advising, assisting, not helping them do their missions, but just training and being there uh, for overall support. But I think to pull back entirely would be a mistake. I think, you know, my hope very much is that the wars end and that even in Afghanistan, that there's a peace agreement with the Taliban of some sense of calm as comes to that country after so many years, but for us to just leave the Afghan government entirely and not leave anyone there to train their forces or to support their forces uh, would seem to me, you know, at the very small level of all of these, uh, sort of uh, misguided in the sense of we've given so much, we have partners over there that we've worked with and can't imagine to to leave them entirely. But do I want, uh, you know, troops to deploy in the capacity that I did? No, because I want that war to end and I want the uh, you know, the, the suffering that goes on during combat to not be experienced by anyone. What are some of the, and I know this is just kind of a rabbit hole, but maybe what are some of the reasons that the war is so extensive and so like ongoing for so many years? Like why, why is it so hard to resolve all of the issues that are going on? And maybe this goes back to the, um, the, what was the agreement? the Sykes-Picot agreement that you're teaching in your in your class. And that might be maybe the major reason that, that all of this is um, occurring. But what what leads to the ongoing nature of the, this war that's going on in the Middle East? Yeah, I think that's definitely part of it. Uh, Sykes-Picot being the, you know, the original foundation of the borders in the Middle East, at least from Iraq, Syria, Jordan. Uh, Kuwait areas um, to give that the sense of why we have the countries the way they are. And the issue is that it w- the issue that you know, people would say today is that they didn't respect the actual ethnic sectarian divisions on the ground. So you're creating these sort of fake countries that just exist on a on paper, but it, on the ground people see themselves differently. What you have now, you know, after years, you know, almost 200 years or sorry, 100 years from that agreement is you have you do have a sense of Iraq nationalism, as I, you know, as I can imagine it as an outsider. Um, you do have a sense of Jordanian nationalism. Um, Syria, through its civil war, is very much fragmented into three different regions at this point. So you don't really have that sense of a Syrian nationalism. You still sort of have a, uh, you know, a country that isn't that doesn't really fit its own borders because of that. So very difficult, I think. The divisions and sort of the ethnic divisions and then terrorism itself has just torn the region apart to the fact that we still uh, the fact that there's still presence there the fact that there's still so much uh, you know difficult suffering and heartbreak and bombings you know all of it has gone down from where it was previously uh, which is good and it's a you know very lucky for the sense that we've that there's been so much progress made by the Afghans by the Iraqis uh, in their countries but I remember I worked very closely on my first deployment. I actually got to see him again on my second deployment of a uh, an American, Iraqi-American, who was an interpreter. And he had gone uh, back to Iraq to serve against ISIS. He was, he was living in America, but he's like, All right, I want to go back to Iraq and serve as an interpreter and tr- try to help our forces uh, and help the Iraqis get uh, beat back the threat. And he told, and I asked him, we were just talking sort of randomly, and I remember thinking, I just asked him what is his favorite city in the world. And he's like, Baghdad, pre-03, hands down. And obviously he's Iraqi, so he was born there. So, I mean, maybe it might be a little biased, but it is just sad to think about how much these cities have changed uh, 
and how much you know suffering is there. When I went to Baghdad briefly, you can sort of see you know, the large expanse on the Tigris, which is you know a beautiful city. And to think about how much heartbreak is there is, is difficult. Kabul in the in the 60s and 70s before the before the real Russian uh, invasion was a very cosmopolitan city as well. And to think about how you know destructive the destructive forces that have been there for so long is uh, so disappointing, obviously. But um, to be more concise, I'd say that it's still the eth ethnic divisions and then the wars that just have been nonstop um, fighting over resources, you know, moving away from oil as a society and as a world uh, helps us stabilize the region in a sense because of how much money is poured in uh, and then used for the wrong reasons um, because of oil and uh, you know, that, that what that brings to the region for the divisions. One of my uh, hopes, you know, we see the Iran deal right now. And if we try to redo the Iran deal and include Saudi Arabia and Israel, you know, then you have, I think, France, Germany, Iran, US, Saudi Arabia and Israel. So everyone, the major players in whatever conflict that could be, come to the table and say, well, this is how we're going to have a peaceful agreement in the Middle East. You know, there is hope for that. Um, is it how much hope? Probably not as much, but because you can't see some of those countries coming together on the same table. But you know, I, I am... I am hopeful that progress has been made and that there are a lot of things that people can learn from and that all of these historical ethnic divisions are not being, are not tearing us apart as much as they used to um, because people can sort of see the shared humanity that we have through all the suffering that they've dealt with. So I'm hopeful for, for a change and to see that, you know, the, the lines that were drawn on the map so many years ago can be sort of taken and to be their own countries now. So would those lines have to be redrawn, re everything reconfigured, or how would that how would that work? That's a good question. I think for for Syria itself as a country is something that will be decided. You know, hopefully, you know, as soon as possible as that war can end. But it's really at a stalemate between three different regions right now that have you know torn the country into th into three different parts, which are functioning at their own and just fighting a little bit at the different borders. We're fighting a decent amount at the borders of the country. Is Syria going to get redrawn? You know, the, the president of Syria, Bashar al-Assad, obviously is fighting to keep his borders intact. Um, but it's just something to see over time. I think Iraq is strong the way it is, um, or the way its borders are drawn. Um, but, you know, things could change. I think it's hard to imagine borders changing and sort of see it because you sort of learn the world and you learn the map and you think, well, this is, this is how it's always been. Obviously, it hasn't, and it's changed in other people's lifetimes. And it, it could be something that could change. I think Syria would be the place where it would change the most because of the ongoing civil war. So from your vantage point in Western Iraq, when you were deployed over there, what, how did you gain knowledge and information about the entire region? And, and what, what areas were you really responsible for when you were over there? Yes. I, the best thing that I could do, the military does a good job of training you to be, you know, to lead your team. But, and it does a decent job about preparing you for the culture, but it just can't prepare you as much as you need to be prepared for the culture and the history and the geography. Uh, so what I did is I read a lot of books about the Middle East before I went. And then while I was there, I was still reading a lot of books to try and learn as much as I can about, you know, the two sects, of, the two main sects of Islam, Shia versus Sunni. I read books from a Shia perspective. I read books from a Sunni perspective. I read books from the American perspective of the conflict. And I tried to read books from sort of the Middle Eastern perspective as well to, to, to not be, uh, you know, skewed by one way. So reading a lot of books uh, helped talking to my, you know, interpreters. I would spend extra time talking to, 
you know, just hanging out and trying to learn from them about their take in Iraq. But studying the maps, you know, I, I every day, on, you know, because I was in a command center on a computer, I was pretty much just, uh, you know, studying the map or looking at, at the Euphrates. And it is, you know, as we all learn and sort of the foundation of, uh, you know, our, our history or as a, uh, you know, as humans, you know, the cradle of civilization it is bizarre to then sit, see yourself right next to the Euphrates in that world where we all, you know, have some level of heritage to learn that. But, you know, I studied the map, I studied the names, I studied the towns. I like uh, Elliot Ackerman's Places and Names, the the title and sort of one of his stories of talking about how you learn where you are by the places and names and the dates of what, what happened in all that time. So um, one of my, as I was early trying to prepare my platoon to go over to deployment, we knew we were going to go to this base in, in Western Iraq uh, that's right off the Euphrates. And I drew on a whiteboard sort of the curve of the Euphrates to like sort of, you know, get the team in the mindset of this is where we're going to be. And then a contractor came over who was a former Marine and then he pointed the board and he was like, that was my patrol base. And he was just pointing to this random spot right, right sort of across the river, but he could, you know, everyone who deploys that region understands, starts to learn the map that well that he just saw a bend in what looked like a river. And he was like, yep, that was me in Ambar province. So, you know, eventually you learn that as you spend time over there and, you know, every day studying the map and, you know, watching the towns from the drone feeds that I, that I saw just like sort of learn the, the people and the, and the population as you see it. And, you know, something I'll never, never forget that area. You know, I could, I could name the cities on the Euphrates uh, still today. And it's something that's sort of burned in, burned in your mind from how, how long you send uh, staring at it and trying to learn it. How long were you over there again? How long were you in Western Iraq? So that was my first deployment, which was about seven months. Seven months. Uh, and then I went back on my second deployment, 2018, from March to October uh, 2018, and I bounced around. Uh, the war had changed by then. ISIS had been kicked out of Iraq almost entirely, at least by holding territory, which was a big win to see. When I went back to that same base where I was on my first deployment, it felt much more calm. There was a coffee shop that was opened up on base, and I was like, okay. Things are good now, <laughs> uh, and uh, but it was, you know that was a it was a cool moment to see and sort of see the changes that had come through a lot of hard work, obviously from Iraqis and uh, the coalition supporting them. But uh, and then second deployment, I bounced around to Syria, Afghanistan. I spent a lot of time in Kuwait, but bounced around to those other areas in Iraq. That's when I went to Baghdad on another base in, uh, in Anbar province as well. So sort of saw the whole spectrum. So I was still studying the area, and obviously I was close to. Um, the mission still in Western Iraq, so I still had that oversight of uh, what was going on there. So it was another, you know, seven months of studying the region that got me uh, to remember it so well. Great. Well, thanks for uh, for sharing all this information. I'm sure it's going to be, I mean, really valuable for people to listen to this, and especially the guys and, and girls in your in your class. I'm sure they're soaking up a lot of information the syllabus i mean hopefully i want to jump in i want to jump in on you got some tsl aid in there yep which is great some humility right yeah yeah that goes back to humility being the leadership sort of trait i always thought from from his line uh, about humility in one of his four quartets that i've always loved i love that poem east coker right east East coker Coker, yeah the only wisdom you can hope to acquire is the wisdom of humility humility is endless love it always remember it um when did you read that? Was that just on your own? Or is that, was that... A, that was actually a uh, senior elective uh, at Rome Park. Oh, no way. Yeah. No, he, it was a senior elective called Wasteland. Uh, all about T.S. Eliot? All about T.S. Eliot. Yeah, and I loved it. I mean, my sister, who was a Bryn Mawr 
uh, Bryn Margrel also took it, and then she said, "You have to take this class with your senior." I was like, "Okay, cool." Who do you remember who taught that class? Uh, Doctor Sound. I don't know if he's still here. I got to see if he's around. I, I assume he left. He was saying he was going to leave back when back when I was there. But a lot of our friends took it, remembered it. I've always sort of held on to T. S. Eliot. That was the quote that I wrote in my sort of book at my at infantry school. That's what I wrote on the wall. Um, so it's always been something I've held on to. Yeah, it's an, an amazing poem. Uh, four quartets. There's uh, actually online on YouTube. It's T. S. Eliot reads that whole poem. I'm sure you. Oh really? Yeah, it's I pretty. Check that out. Yeah. Well, I usually I usually look things like that up because when I'm reading poetry or reading you know some Shakespeare in college, I had to kind of have someone read it to me as I'm reading it. It just helps my processing a little bit more. But it's cool to have T. S. Eliot actually read that out loud. Yeah. Um, thinking back to your experience at Gilman, um, what maybe advice or guidance or thoughts would you maybe have to someone here right now, whether they're in middle school or lower school or high school about to move on to college and the next step in their life? Do you have any kind of thoughts for, for people who are here now? Yeah. I mean, I remember... I remember my time at Gilman, obviously very fondly and very, very well of all the teachers that I had and the mentors. And, you know, Jeffrey Guline was my advisor, obviously still here, a great support to so many people around the school. Uh, and those, the lessons that I really got was just the chance to learn and learn as much as you can and be open to learning. I think the opportunities you have here are so many, uh, whether it's you know, being able to go to office hours or talk to a teacher and learn from a teacher more um, or have the creativity to, you know, join your own group or make your own club or something like that or, you know, just be on a team and, and have that support. So there's so many great opportunities there. The, the thing that I would always uh, say is that it's all about the people that you're with. So hold on to those relationships that you can, whether it's friends or whether it's teachers and, uh, you know, cherish them as much as you, as much as you can. One of the things that I sort of had a funny sort of memory as I've been walking past watching the lower school play sports is that I think that I'm sort of struck by the fact that as I see two kids arguing about a rule and like some little baseball game they're playing that I I think kids and you know students and you know us and the grown-ups have, have much shorter memories about getting angry at people mm -hmm. it's like you're you're the capacity to forgive is so much stronger when you're younger uh, than it is when you're older and I think there's so many things that we in this divided world that we sort of can uh let us divide us from friends whether it's politically like divide us from friends or uh, even intra or intra-family being divided that way i think there's so much more that we can learn from each other if we have that sense of unity and have that sense of forgiveness that sometimes you lose as you get older it's like no i'm not talking to him anymore he did that one thing i'm not talking about it's yeah like, holding a grudge it's like why do we we don't do that as much when we're younger and i think it's something to to hold on to as you as you transition out of Gilman and, and get on through college and beyond. I love that. Yeah. Forgiveness is something that is really missing in our society right now. It's like, and, and I've talked about this before, but I've just read Matthew McConaughey's uh, memoir, Green Lights. And one of the things he tells, which I think was one of the strongest points he makes in that book is he, he, when he gets famous, he like needs to humble himself. So he, he decides to go to Mali in Africa and when he was in Africa, he was staying with this with this tribe over there, and the the people he was with or he was staying with got into like a fierce argument about something, and 
I remember Matthew like j- jumped in and he's explaining how he jumped in and tried to settle things down. And someone else who was in the room says, they're not, they're not fighting. They're not arguing. They're just trying to understand each other. And that really struck me because we can get into an argument about whatever it is that we want to talk about and we disagree, but we're not so much arguing and, you know, holding a grudge against each other and getting into a fight as we're just trying to understand each other. And and afterwards it's easy to, or it's hard, but it, it should be that we forgive each other uh, for whatever it is that goes down. We're just, we're trying to come to an agreement and try to understand each other a little bit better. So I like that word of advice is for forgiveness. It's, it, it really is missing in our, in our world today. Yeah. And it's sad. I mean, it's why, why can't we forgive or, or have a tough argument and then realize there's so much more that we have in common than this little thing that we disagree on. And that goes back to tribe a little bit. It's just the sense of unity as a, as a society or, or as a friendship or a group, we're just sort of, we're missing and I think forgiveness is the part of that that we're just not good at it. Yeah. Uh, Jay, it's been an awesome time on the podcast today. Thanks so much for coming on and um, best of luck to you in your class. I'm, I'm hoping that I can maybe stop by and check it out one of these days. Yeah, anytime. I love it. Thanks, Jake. Thanks awesome. for having me. Thank you. Thank you.